He's already an Eclipse Award-winning jockey. Now Kyle Frey will try to spoil the party when he pilots Blended Citizen in the Belmont Stakes. Plus, we all know about the 37-year Triple Crown drought that American Pharaoh ended, but winning the Triple Crown here in the United States is easy compared with some other major racing countries. We'll go around the world in 12 minutes on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're in the gate. In the gate. They're in the gate. It's a head-bobbing finish! This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And remember, we also are doing a video version of In The Gate. Yes, a video version on ESPN Plus, our digital streaming subscription service. So for five bucks a month, you can get us. We'll be previewing the Belmont Stakes, a totally separate show on video, so don't miss that. Now then, you've probably heard of Russell Bays, the winningest jockey in North American racing history with nearly 13,000 victories. But he rode in relative anonymity in Northern California, and just 97 of those wins were in graded stakes. One of Russell Bays's main attendants during his four decades of riding was Jay Frey, whose son Kyle had dreams of following in Bays's footsteps. Now in his eighth full year as a rider, based mainly at the track where he grew up, Golden Gate Fields near San Francisco, Frey already has four graded stakes wins, and two of them have come aboard a horse that will try to crash the party at the Belmont Stakes. Core beliefs in Tyler Bays have the lead and a furlong to go for the back of the pack. Blended Citizen is coming though. It is Core Beliefs. Blended Citizen closing down the center of the track. Core Beliefs trying to hold on. Blended Citizen's got him. Blended Citizen wins the Peter Pan. Kyle Frey is not only fortunate to be in this position, he's lucky to be alive. We'll get to that in a moment as we welcome the rider of blended citizen, Kyle Frey, here to In the Gate. Let's start with the horse. He was number 21 on the list for the Kentucky Derby, which, of course, started 20. So what was it like waiting it out to see whether you'd get in there or not, which, of course, did not happen? Um, That was real. That was a that was a stressful ordeal, that's for sure. I mean, with how it was looking, we had so many come out. I believe it was like within the two weeks going in, it, it really was really looking like we were going to get in, especially with the whole, you know, the, the immense amount of rain we had. You'd think at least one person would want to scratch out, you know, so I think we were all fairly confident we were going to get in. So, to, so uh, I, you know, really working it up in my head that, oh, this is going to happen. That's probably a lot of where it was just like, oh, it was just heartbreaking, just heartbreaking. Then you have to regroup and run them the very next week in New York. Mentally, how hard was it for you to regroup? You know what? For that first initial night was tough, but uh, it wasn't wasn't really all that hard to bounce back. I do a lot of uh, meditating and praying and whatnot. And, you know, that really helps keep me centered, I think. I narrate audiobooks in my spare time. You can find them on Amazon. They make lovely gifts, and a bunch of them have to do with mindfulness meditation, so I totally hear you. I love it, love it. That's exactly, you know, um, yeah, that's that's what I try to try to practice. Some days are easier than others, but uh, I definitely am a big fan of that, all that kind of stuff. 
How much time do you take out of your day to do that? So I'll try to do at least a half an hour, but I do notice I, I catch myself if I'm in, in that, like, you know, just not being mindful and not being aware of what's going on or my emotions or, or things like that. I'll just, when I catch it, I'll take that maybe even a minute, even just a minute, just to kind of clear my head, breathe a little bit and uh, just feel that blood flowing and then feel my body relaxing and, and try to kind of regroup basically. So, so mostly throughout the day, I'll do it a lot, to be honest. Wow. Speaking of emotions, how surprised are you that trainer Doug O'Neill has kept you on this horse instead of using a bigger name in the Southern California jockey colony or a New York-based rider? Yeah, I know it. I mean, Doug's just a great guy. I mean, uh, he was one of the initial initial people to, t to ask me, you know, whenever you're ready to come down here, by all means, I'll have horses for you. you know, he, he was really supportive of it uh, as soon as I did decide to, to go ahead and make that leap. Um, he's, he's a great guy. Great guy. I mean, you, you couldn't find nothing bad to say about Doug. He's just that kind of guy. I'm sure he'd beg to differ, though. <laughs> Blended Citizen is full of run, and Muggeritz is still there. Way out wide, here comes Zanesville. As a racing deep stretch, Pony Up emerges. Pony Up to the outside, Blended Citizen to the inside, down to the wire, a photo finish that goes to Blended Citizen. So Blended Citizen wins the race at Turfway, and after that win in March on the synthetic dirt, he faced one of the biggest questions, which is how he'd handle conventional dirt. Well, Blended Citizen chased home Magnum Moon on regular dirt in the Arkansas Derby, finishing second, and then he won the Peter Pan at Belmont Park, so so much for the dirt question. So what, in your mind, is he still working on as he jumps into the deep end of the pool? I really feel like he's really coming into his own right now. We had it on blinkers, and I really feel like that helped him start to focus. Now, I really feel like he's, he's really maturing, he's really coming into his own which is the perfect time, you know, when he's about to run in the biggest race of his whole career and, and mine, actually. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I really feel like the, the only the only thing would be just making sure that he stays calm because he, he's, he's really good at that naturally, though. You know, he's a very smart horse. He conserves himself throughout the race. And when it comes time to go, he, he, he knows. I mean, he's pretty much push button. I mean, I love I love riding this horse. We're just we're really in sync right now. I mean, uh, I, I love this horse so much. He's, he's a phenomenal animal. And I just really hope I get to do him justice and uh, prove what he can do. Because of the job your father had, how much of an influence has Russell Bays been on your career? Oh, a lot, man. I mean, I, uh, I, my dad's actually a valet uh, in the room, so he uh, he had Russell's tack in the jocks room and took care of him and whatnot, so I, I grew up around Russell my whole life. Um, he's uh, just a 100% class act. I mean, Russell's a phenomenal guy all around and a heck of a rider, that's for sure. Jockey Kyle Frey joining us here on In the Gate. He'll pilot Blended Citizen in the Belmont Stakes. Now, you're actually a third-generation horseman. Your grandfather, Paul, rode at Long Acres, many other West Coast tracks as well. And I've read where you described him as a real hard boot. And what was he like? Towards the end, um, you know, as most older guys get, especially race trackers, they just they'll say it like it is, you know. So he, he was great. He was He was hilarious. And he, he always told me, you know, if you make one mistake, you're just learning. But if you make two, then you're an idiot. <laughs> if, you, if you do the same thing twice, then you're an idiot. You know? <laughs> Speaking of hard boot, Kyle Frey, like most jockeys, is pretty tough himself. It was June of 2012 when he broke his femur while riding at parks, had metal rods inserted into his leg to help fuse the bones, but that area contracted a life-threatening infection. What was that whole experience and recovery like for you? 
Oh man, um, that was that was definitely devastating. Cause I just come down south. We got we were we were going pretty good. Me and my um, agent Mark North, who actually passed away. If I'm not mistaken, I think I finished my first meet here. A little little uh, two week meet they have uh, the Hollywood meet. Um, I think I finished that like tied for ninth, and that was my first meet here. So I mean, we were, we were off to a really good start. So to be sat down with all these really class horses that I was picking up was just devastating. And uh, I think the biggest hurt of it all was um, they found one abscess. And uh, after they described it, uh, I told them, you know, I have the same feeling uh, in another spot in my leg. Are you guys sure there's only one? Sure enough, a month later, the swelling had gone down. They they went ahead and looked at it because I was still sick and uh, like throwing up blood. Uh, my temperature was like 103 and change or something. Uh, and you're saying that's a problem? Yeah. So so we went back and they found another another abscess and found out that I was allergic to the medicine that they had been giving me. So I, I was suffering from red man syndrome. So <laughs> along with the the infection trying to kill me, the medicine was uh, helping too. <laughs> Wow. How long did it take you before you came back? Sucks. I want to say like three, three, four months. And that was uh, every day getting, um, I have what's called a pick line in where it's a, basically a tube that goes through your main artery and it sits three millimeters from your heart. And I had to take medicine twice a day. Um, man, if I didn't think I was going to die, I was praying to do. <laughs> I mean, could something like that, a burst abscess there have really been life threatening? Yeah, no, they t they actually told me uh, as soon as uh, they had done the scan, the the doctor was telling me <laughs> you're gonna get a kick out of this. So the doctor had told me he's like, this is really bad. Like you, you could lose your leg or die if this thing pops. And I was like, well, I got some really good horses coming up on Friday. You think I could come back on uh, Monday? <laughs> so they, <laughs> this guy's like, man, you were sick. I was like, ah, I just uh, you know I got to do what I got to do. But uh, that's when that's when he did he, he did get the point across that you know. You've really pressed it far as far as you've come. I couldn't bend my leg. Uh, that Delmar meet, I, I just, I, I finally had to throw the towel on it. I was leaning on uh, one side of the leg. My horses were lugging out a lot, which I found out later that that's why, because now they they go relatively straight, you know, depending on the mounts. So yeah, it was uh, it was a tough ordeal, that's for sure. It took a took a lot of time to psychologically get over that. Boy, it's good to be young, I suppose. Uh, are your legs of different <laughs> length now because one has rods in them? Um, no, they actually took out the uh, hardware as well. The the hardware was removed because that's what caused the infection. Was uh, the I guess the uh, bacteria uh, tend to go straight for uh, metal or the uh, aluminum because it's it's something about it stays cold and then uh, I don't know they can uh, they thrive off of it. Basically, they they multiply the, the uh, bacteria multiply a lot quicker on hardware. Well, at least it'll be easier to go through airports. Now, you did mention uh, the <laughs> loss of your longtime agent, Mark North, just a couple of months ago. He just was 49 years old, had a lung disease. Yeah. What did he mean to you? Ah, uh, man. Uh, you're getting sentimental now, damn. <laughs> um, yeah, that was, a, that, was a, that was a huge hit, that's for sure. Um, yeah, he was like a father figure to me. Uh, we got the Eclipse Award together, East Coast, West Coast. We we crushed wherever we went. So that was a that was a big hit. That's just a big hit. How's it been for you the last couple of months? Um, you know, I I kind of uh, it was really hard at first. I had a lot of support through through Doug, his team. Um, my new agent's been great. Bill Sadu's doing a great job. My family. Just, uh, you know, I've had a lot of support. Art Sherman, or Steve Sherman, um, Art, Danny, one of one of my agents. I've had a lot of really, really good support uh, behind me. So that's really 
help keep me strong. And I, I just like to think of it as that he's still here and uh, take everything he's taught me and put it to use now. Don't 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 uh, count on him to holler at me about it. <laughs> well, certainly Mark North was responsible for your riding Blended Citizen. So let's get back to him for a second. You obviously rode him at Belmont Park to win the Peter Pan. I'm guessing, though, that you haven't ridden too many races there. We all know how much bigger Belmont Park is than any other track in North America. At a mile and a half around, it's 50% bigger than many tracks. Usually, you'd start asking your horse for his best when you hit the far turn. But at Belmont, that's an extra eighth of a mile or so than it is at most places. So how are you preparing for that sort of thing? Shucks. That's that's a good question. I mean, I think my horse is naturally going to adapt to that. If you look back on all his all his uh, prior races, that's kind of where where he he falls short in those shorter races. That he's just getting his engine going by the time we get there. You know, luckily the synthetic race uh, Turfway, um, he, he it's a little more uh, it grabs a little bit better than uh, dirt does. So he's naturally able to to kick a little quicker, but. Yeah, those dirt courses, uh, it seems like the more more distance this horse gets, the better off he's going to be by far. Well, I was there the day real quiet, had a chance at the Triple Crown, but Kent DeSormo moved on him too early, and Kent DeSormo was based at Belmont Park for years, and he still made the mistake because he hadn't been riding there regularly. So certainly de- certainly it's got to be on your mind. But even though the Belmont's distance of a mile and a half is the longest on dirt in North America and maybe the world, it's not one by come from behinders that often as you might think it is because the pace is usually slow. So front runners often do well. That's how Victor Espinosa wrote American Pharaoh to complete the triple crown. What do you think Mike Smith will do with justify who's a front runner anyway? And what do you do as a result? Um, well, I think uh, I'm, I'm really sure that Mike's uh, pretty comfortable with the pace that he's been setting so far. He's said it several times in interviews. So I'm, I don't think he's going to try to dial him back too much more. The one thing that, that I did see is like a uh, kind of an upset is that like good magic isn't going in, audible isn't going in, bolt isn't going in. You know, a lot of these horses that had that speed that could press him aren't aren't going to be there to soften him up for me. I mean, that's just that's a really strong horse that that justifies an amazing horse. Mike's done a great job on him, um, so it's definitely going to be a big feat to try to overcome. Definitely, and I'm, I'm wishing Mike the best, but I'm still still going to have to do my job. That's that's uh, most certain. What would it mean to you to win the Belmont? Oh, jeez, that would mean everything. That would just be phenomenal. I mean, uh, I, I couldn't even put it into words how, how great that would feel, and uh, especially to, to be able to show, show what Blended can do and do right by Doug and uh, by Steve Young, Jason Young, and Greg Hall, and, and, and Brooke, Brooke Hubbard for picking the horse. I mean, she picked a phenomenal animal. And, uh, yeah, I mean, just to do the whole team justice would, would just just mean wonders to me. Well, I guess being booed by that crowd as you come back to the grandstand would probably be the best feeling in the world. And we certainly wish you the best <laughs> of luck, Kyle Frey. Thank you so much for a few minutes. Thank you. <laughs> We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, you think it's hard to win the Triple Crown here in the States? It's really hard in other major racing countries around the world. We'll drop in on some of them and see how hard it is to win the Triple Crown in other countries when we come back. Welcome back to the In the Gate podcast. As you know, when American Pharaoh won the Triple Crown in 2015, it was the first Triple Crown in the United States since 1978, a span of 37 years. 
That's nothing compared to the droughts of major triple crowns around the world. Yes, there are a lot of other racing countries who have what they call triple crowns for three-year-olds, and it's really interesting to compare those in other countries with the United States. When you look closely enough, you realize the American triple crown is not as hard or elusive to win as you might think. So we're going to do a quick hit with a number of different racing reporters around the world and get a sense of how they compare their triple crowns to the American one. And we're going to start with the British triple crown. We welcome in Lydia Hislop of Racing UK joining us again here on In the Gate. The British triple crown has been won 15 times, but not since 1970. That would be the 2000 Guineas, which happened on Kentucky Derby Day. The Derby, the English Derby, which comes up on June 2nd, the week before the Belmont, and then the St. Ledger down in September. So, Lydia, you have a horse that is being considered a candidate to win the Triple Crown in Saxon Warrior for Coolmore. What do you make of his chances? Yeah, it's really exciting. I mean, I'm a big fan of the existing Triple Crown. I think there's some flaws to it currently, as I think we'll probably discuss, or what people perceive to be flaws. But it is exciting, and really, it can only come from Ballydore and Coolmore, possibly Godolphin these days again. The whole intent to try and do that, obviously they were responsible for the last horse to try and do it in when Camelot tried it in 2012 and won the 2000 Guineas, won the Derby, and then sadly could have only finish second to Enki in the St. Ledger. And he was the first person to try it even since Najutski achieved it in 1970. Is your horse fast enough to win over 1,600 metres, and then does it stay well enough to win over 2,921 metres? I mean, that's the the thing about the British Triple Crown, it's a span of 1,321 metres, and that is quite a feat for a horse to achieve. Is that why there have only been two since 1918? It's not just that span of 1,321 metres difference between the 2,000 guineas and the St. Ledger. We're talking about the first week in May, first weekend in May, um, which is when the the 2,000 guineas is, and halfway through September, which is when the St. Ledger is. So, you know, there's two feats there, aren't there? One, it's being able to be a top-class effective at a, a huge variety of trips, or two extremes of trips although the, the latter wouldn't be an extreme, of course, in, in Britain, because we have a two-and-a-half-mile Ascot Gold Cup. Um, but you, you see what I mean. Within the classic generation, it's quite two ex- extremes, inverted commas, of distance. But also to be able to hold your form at that level for that long, from the start of May to the mid-September. So is that what you mean by flaws in the Triple Crown? I like the fact that it's difficult to achieve. I think it's a really good thing that that very, very few horses have ever been able to do it. However, the problem is that the modernity and the sort of quick buck inclination of bloodlines these days, isn't it? And the tendency towards sprinters, you know, maximum 10 furlong horses, rather than your, your staying horse. And the only people who remain interested in that as a strand of their business, really, are Darley and also Coolmore. And so that's why I say that they're really only the, the two bloodstock powers that could regularly be looked upon to even to give this a try. The problem is that in the modern bloodstock market, a horse winning over 2,400 metres, let alone 2,921 metres, is deemed to be, inverted commas, slow. And I think that that is very wrong indeed, very wrong indeed, particularly as many St. Ledger winners in particular uh, prove themselves to, to have a prowess over 10 furlongs and 12 furlongs, not just over the trip of the St. Ledger. And I personally find there to be something exemplary about the staying racehorse. 
And if you think that one's hard to win, how about the French Triple Crown? There have only been two of them, and the last one was in 1899. Yikes! We'd get some perspective on that. We welcome in for the first time here to win the gate freelance writer Fanny Salmon. Why has there not been a French Triple Crown since the 1800s? Well, if you want a culprit, I think you can blame the Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe, the uh, premier race in, in Europe for three-year-olds and up. Basically, if you're looking at the uh, French um, classic program, it was modeled after the English classic program. So we have the Poule d'Essai, which is our version of the Guinness, usually run a week apart. We have the Jockey Club, a.k.a. the French Derby, which tra- traditionally takes place the day after the Epsom counterpart. And designed after the St. Ledger, we have that race which is run on a staying distance. It's called the Pre-Royal Oak, and it's run in the fall. Now, since the 1920s, we've had the wait-for-age race known by everybody around the world as the ARC. And it's no surprise that most horsemen in Europe would prefer to run that race when they have a dual classic winner than to try and win the Royal Oak. Now, in many countries, though, there is a prestige for winning the Triple Crown. So would there not be a prestige Obviously, the you know the the arc is the arc, but would there not be some prestige to winning all three of these races? It doesn't have the same aura, and I think if I remember well, the American um, history, racing history, the Triple Crown did not become known as a challenge until uh, probably a couple of horses had already won what became known as the Triple Crown. And when when we're thinking about you know the two French winners, Zut and Perth. And that was 1879 and 1899. So I think really when when you're looking at the precision nowadays, more than anything, when you have a really talented three-year-old colt, you're looking at making a stallion. And the money in, in stallions is not so much with the stayers. Actually, we see a lot of uh, breeders, especially commercial breeders, running away, if I may say, from stayers and and looking at a mile and a half, our classic distance in Europe is probably a bit too far to to have a really commercial stallion. Well, we now have heard that in two different countries that they're going away from stayers, horses that can stay a long distance to shorter distance. Do you think that's American influence? Because Americans seem to be breeding more for speed and less for distance. I didn't know whether you felt Americans were the cause of that or the byproduct of that. Well, they probably caused the trend because people, when people are trying to see what's marketable, you know, America is a big market and the Usually the Keeneland sales or the uh, Phasic Tipton sales, sales in America kind of set an international trend. So that, that could definitely be the way. And when Zoot and Perth won the race, it was actually um, 3,000 meters. And I think I made the calculation. And, and by American standards, uh, we're talking about a mile and seven-eighths of a mile. Wow. Do you think the Triple Crown races would be changed just to give them a little bit more prestige? Maybe use a different race as the third race, change the distances, change the timing, something to make it more exciting? It's interesting that you you mentioned this because when the French program was remodeled in 2005, they shortened the French Derby to 2,100 meters. They moved back the Grand Prix de Paris, which originally was also a distance race, was shortened to a mile and a half. And for a long time, it competed in in the program with the French Derby. So they moved it a bit further back, and, and that could have been a spring triple crown of sorts. 
but the three horses who won the first two legs of that would-be triple crown, Chamardel, Lope de Vega, and Pamto, never actually ran in that third race. The triple crown is legendary in America, and everybody wants to win the triple crown. I think if you have a good good English horse, there is a lot of prestige to the to winning the English triple crown. I wouldn't be surprised if you asked a lot of French horse professionals if they even know what three races make the triple crown. Some might not even know. Let's go to the other side of the world, to Japan, and talk about the Japanese triple crown. There are seven holders of the Japanese triple crown, including the great sire Deep Impact back in 2005. Let's get some perspective with Naohiro Goda, who is a racing analyst for the Japanese Racing Channel, their equivalent of TVG. So, Mr. Goda, how important is the Japanese Triple Crown in racing in Japan? Uh, sure, you know, Triple Crown. To win a Triple Crown is the dream for everybody. Everybody involved in the horse racing and horse breeding. And even for racing fans, you know, everybody, it's dream to watch the emergence of the Triple Crown winner. So it's very, very important in Japan. Now, talk about what the three races are that make up the Triple Crown. The first leg is Satsuki Show. This is the middle of April. And the second leg is Japanese Derby. And the final leg is Kika Show, which is set measure equivalent in October. So Japanese Triple Crown, you know, the range is, you know, longer than you American Triple Crown. But it's very similar to others around the world where the last leg comes in the fall or very late summer. Why do you think that is? Um, <laughs> you know, the season is uh, quite long. So keep running all the season from the springtime to the autumn time is, you know, the horse can overcome very tough, long season is recognized as the best horse. So I think, you know, to have a final leg in autumn time is quite important. Now, there have been two fairly recent winners of the Japanese Triple Crown, Deep Impact, whom we mentioned, and Orfeve in 2011, both of them being world-renowned horses. Is there something about the Triple Crown that really kind of separates the good from the great, not just on the track, but off the track in the breeding shed? Both of Deep Impact and Old Fable, they have the character, their own character. For example, Deep Impact, always, you know, he came from far behind. And, uh, you know, his acceleration used on home stretch is uh, so brilliant. And Old Fable, he had, you know, quite a strange, strange temperament. Sometimes, you know, he didn't want to make a turn, try to go straight on to the far turn. So, you know, both of them are very much loved by the Japanese racing fans. And uh, not only if you are not, you know, racing fans, everybody knew about those two horses. As far as, you know, um, the breeding, breeding value, the final leg, the Kika show, the distance is a two mile. So which is not very important when you assess the value of the, as a stallion. So when you think about it, you know, stallion prospect i think it's more important to in such show and derby first and the second leg of the triple crown and let's come back stateside to our neighbors to the north in canada who have as many triple crown winners as we do 12 but the last one 2003 with wando there'd been a run 
in the late 80s, early 90s, where you had four and five years, but it's really been feast or famine. So to give us some perspective on the Canadian Triple Crown, we bring in for the first time Rob Longley of the Toronto Sun. Thank you so much for being here. I love the fact that the Canadian Triple Crown, the Queen's Plate, the Prince of Wales, and the Breeder Stakes are all run on different surfaces. Has it always been that way with those races? Not always, Barry, uh, because of the, the main track at Woodbine used to be a dirt surface, so that, that would have had the first two legs of the, of the crown on dirt. But uh, once they put the poly track in at Woodbine, uh, that made the opening jewel, the one-and-a-quarter-mile Queen's Plate, a, a different surface than the Prince of Wales, which is the second jewel. And like the Preakness, a cut back in distance to a mile three-eighths and raced on the dirt. You had this feast or famine for a while, four in five years, who were able to run on all three surfaces. That's incredible. How big a deal is the Canadian Triple Crown to people in Canada when you have the American one to the south? Oh, I think it matters in, in its own way, Barry. I mean, the Triple Crown in the U.S. is still head and shoulders above the Canadian Crown in terms of the interest of, of the general public. Now, the Queen's Plate itself is a real event in Canada. It doesn't uh, have the status that the Kentucky Derby does in the States, but it's, it, it does have some interest from coast to coast. The difficulty with the Canadian Triple Crown, though, is that it's so spread out, really. You have the first leg usually going the first week in July, then the Prince of Wales doesn't go till late July, and then the Breeder Stakes, the final leg, the mile and a half on the turf, is usually in late August. So you don't necessarily have horses stay around and be interested in that, in that full run of three races. They may, may be wooed by races in Saratoga if they're good enough or just go in a different direction, focus on the dirt, focus on the poly, and, and maybe ignore that final jewel. So it doesn't really have the continuity that the U.S. Triple Crown has. Well, it's interesting because I've maintained for years that the American Triple Crown should basically be run the same way. Keep the Kentucky Derby where it is, run the Preakness on Memorial Day weekend, four weeks later, and run the Belmont Stakes July 4th, because that's how horses are trained. But you're saying that if horses in Canada are good enough, they're going to come southward and run for bigger money in the States. Yeah, that's often the way. I mean, uh, any owner wants to have a, a horse get a, get a graded stakes win and in the States, whether they're in Canada or, or the U.S. So that certainly has an, has an appeal to them. But the money is good enough to keep them up here. But it's, it's just a matter of do you have a, a kind of horse that is, if he's going to be you know, good on the dirt for a mile and a quarter or good on the poly, is he really going to be a turf horse over, over a mile and a half at, at Woodbine in, in late August? There's a lot of good turf horses up here, a lot of good Canadian-bred turf horses so it makes it difficult to add that other element of versatility to your arsenal. I think that's why you do see horses stray from, from the program at, at some point. One of those who will be presumably pointed to the Queen's Plate was the 13th place finisher in the Kentucky Derby, Flame Away. Does just having the rub of a Kentucky Derby starter in the Queen's Plate add value to the race at all? I think it adds a little bit of appeal for sure, Very. Mark Cassie, of course, who trains Flame Away, has perennially has horses in both events. So it's he's he's always a big big story coming into the Queen's Plate. He's won it a couple of times, and you know he's as much as he's he has many good U.S. breads in his barn. Now he often has some of the best Canadian breads as well, and he's not shy about sending them on on the trail for both both Triple Crowns. And we saw that with Flame Away. When he began the season, I think he was looking at him as a Queen's Plate horse. But once he had some success in some of the early minor prep races, 
stateside, then he said, well, let's get him going towards the Kentucky Derby. And the beauty of that from, from a trainer's standpoint is you can, you can race him in the Kentucky Derby and then you, you still got yourself almost two months to prepare him for the Queens plate. So to get a good Canadian bread, it's a good thing for, for trainers like Mark Cassidy. Our thanks once again to Kyle Frey and to our international correspondents. There's a lesson to be learned from a major gaming shakeup in Britain, where the maximum payout from a video terminal with poker slots and the like has been slashed from $100 to 2 which will make betting shop businesses vulnerable. Those betting shops also pay to take in thoroughbred simulcasts, so losing them hurts the racing industry. In one sense, it is similar to American racinos, where outside interests influence racing heavily. But American racing's decentralized, while the Brits speak with one voice, and because of that, the government takes note. British racing receives a tax on all bets made on the sport. The government's confidence shows firmly in that vote. Yes, governments can change the rules at any time, we know, and betting shop closures sure won't help at all. But having a unified voice in American racing is critical. In difficult times, it will help to soften the fall. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. Remember to check out ESPN Plus, our digital streaming service during Belmont Week for a video. Video version of the podcast previewing Justify's run for the Triple Crown. But for now, that's in the gate. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.